Well, I have one question that I'm going to uh, throw out. It's a one-word question, and hopefully by the time we're finished today, we'll have an answer. Okay? You ready? The question is one word, three letters long. Why? 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 That's the question. We're in the Psalms, and you can probably say, why? You know, what's amazing about the Psalms is that they're emotional. And I do want to talk about emotions today. When Jesus was asked what was the most important thing, he responded by quoting what in Israel today they would refer to as the Shema. And the Shema literally just means to hear, but if you're Jewish and you're religious, it's the first words that you say in the morning when you wake up, and it's the last words you say at night before you go to sleep. But it doesn't end there. In every door of your home, except the bathroom, in every door of your home, there's something that's called a mezuzah. And inside the mezuzah is a scroll that's rolled up, placed inside, and the mezuzah contains the Shema. It's to remind us of who he is and who we are and what he has in mind for us. The Shema says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. A reminder, first thing that you say in the morning, last thing you say at night, wrapped around your home. If you're in Israel, the gates of the city all will have a mezuzah. It's a constant reminder. I don't want to just talk about loving God with your mind. It's important. When Chris first asked me and he says, okay, we're going to go through the Psalms. Which one would you like to preach on, Dan? I said, easy. This is easy. I'll take Psalm 19. And he says, uh, well, that means you'll preach on this date. And I'll say, well, mm, I can't do that. And so, as only Chris could say, is pick another one. But the reason I would have picked Psalm 19 is because it asks a question. It says, what's more valuable than gold? What is sweeter than the honey in the honeycomb? It's the Word of God, right? It's the Word of God that's more to be desired than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey from the honeycomb. We need the Word of God. I love the Word of God. I want to fill my mind with the Word of God. I want it to be a lamp into my feet. I want it to guard me. I want it to give me wisdom and understanding, but 
I couldn't preach on that. But that word of God has to do with what you fill your mind with, right? What do we fill our minds with today? That's just a question. And then my question is why? Well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, but with all of your soul. Where is the soul actually located? Again, I'm going to give you your your Jewish roots because we've been grafted in, right? the, the, The soul doesn't reside in your mind. The soul doesn't necessarily even reside in your heart. You know where they think the soul actually resides? in your gut. It's emotional. And I want to talk about emotions today. I think it's important in this day and age that we just don't engage our culture with our minds. I think it's important that we engage our culture with our gut. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? What are you doing about it? Your gut. And so last week, Bruce, I'll give you the analogy. He took us in an elevator. We get into the elevator, and there's 150 buttons, right? 150 songs. And he pressed 51. And what did we do? We went, did we go up? Or did we go down? We went down. Because we talked about what lamenting was about, what grieving was about. We talked about David in, his, in the depths of his grief. We talked about Nathaniel pointing his finger at, at David after he gave him a little parable and says, Thou art the man. And David knew it, Right? Knees cut off, fell flat on his face, grieving, lamenting, crying out, create in me a psalm of lament. The reason the psalms are so enjoyable for us is because they're emotional and we live there. They're not just a narrative. They're not just a story. They're just not... It's not like the New Testament and the epistles where Paul's going to say, you need to do this and don't do that and do this. No, they're emotional. So as we went in that elevator and we got down to that floor, this morning we're going to get back in the elevator. I'd like to say that we were going to push a button that would take us to the heights. But unfortunately for you all, we're going to get back in the elevator and we're going to go down once again. We're going to press 88. And we're going to, have you ever been in an elevator, an old one, where when it actually hits the bottom, you sort of feel like you're at the bottom, right? Psalm 88 is referred to, aren't you glad you came today? It's referred to as 
the black psalm. It is the psalm that is spoken at the lowest ebb of the human emotion. So we're going to get down, and as that elevator opens, we're not getting out yet, because I need to tell you a couple things to prepare you for what you're going to see, experience, and more importantly for me, feel. It's emotional. When Jesus was risen from the dead and he met a couple guys on the road to Emmaus, it says that he spoke to them and he opened their eyes to the Old Testament and understanding who he was. And then when they discover that, probably seeing the holes in his hands and the feet, it says he disappears, but he reappears to his disciples and he says to them, and this is from Luke, he says, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses, that's the Torah, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Jesus is saying that the entirety of the book, the volume of the book, is written of him. Whether it's the Torah, whether it's the prophets, or whether it's the Psalms. And the one thing that most people don't realize that when we look at messianic prophecies in the Old Testament, talking about who he is, most people don't realize that there are more messianic prophecies in the Psalms than all the others. And so what can we experience? What can we see? Can we see a glimpse of Jesus in the Psalms? Can we feel his emotions? And may, by the way, maybe we should stop there in a second, for a second, I should say. And I'll simply ask the question, when it comes to Jesus, did he really have human emotions? We know that he, the, the scriptures tell us what? That he was fully God, right? We shouldn't have any doubts about that. The divinity of Jesus, fully God. But how do we handle this? The writer of Hebrews says, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like them, that's us, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. And because of that, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Fully God, human in every way. A question I can't answer. When did Jesus actually know who he was? 
You think he knew he was the son of God? Do you think he knew he was God when he was a toddler? You think he knew that then? Do you think he knew it when he was growing up as a teenager and somebody messed with him and he looks at him and says, you don't mess with me, son of God, okay? You think Jesus ever played soccer? If he was a goalie, do you think anybody ever scored on him? You think every time he got the ball, he would score? He's God, right? Emotions. All right, we have an old-fashioned Bible study that we hold at our home on Tuesday nights, and I asked our group, I said, Do you, can we find, I said, help me out here with my sermon on Sunday. I said, can we find in the Bible any place that Jesus exhibited human emotions? And we came up with a list. Love, joy, happiness. Do you think Jesus ever laughed? Anger, wrath. Think Jesus Ever had anger? We like to call it in evangelical circles righteous indignation, okay? But I got a feeling when Jesus was kicking over tables that those around didn't say, don't worry about it, he's just got some righteous indignation, okay? I wonder, was he mad? Was he angry? How about this? Was Jesus ever sad? I mean, he's God. Right? Was he ever sad? Did he ever have sorrow? Or in his mind does he say, I'm God, I know everything. I know how it's all going to work out. So I'll pretend, but I wonder if he's fully human and he can help us. Was he sad? Was he fearful? Let that one sink in. You think Jesus was ever afraid? Do we have that emotion? Do you think he was ever disgusted? Do you think he ever hungered? Do you think he was ever thirsty? Do you think he was ever exhausted? How about frustrated? Think Jesus was ever frustrated? Agony. I just throw these out because these are not normally things we think about. But if Jesus is fully human and he's able to help us because could you identify with any of these things that I wrote? These emotions that we go through I dare say that in a group here, as I read those emotions, if I asked for a show of hands, how many of you were this or that or whatever, hands would go up all over the place, right? And so my question is, how did he handle it? So I want to go for a walk. 
And so uh, before I show you a place that I want to go to first, uh, we're going to go to Israel. And by the way, we are going to Israel. We're going in September. And guess what? We've still got room for you. So anybody that wants to join us, it's not too late. But we're going to go for a walk today to Israel. But before we open that elevator in, at floor 88, which is the bottom of Get Out, I want to give you a little prep for what you're going to experience, what you're going to see. Because before we get to Psalm 88, I think there was a previous conversation that was taking place. So we're going back in time. I'm going to lump us all into being with the 12, okay? And right now, we are heading to the upper south side of the city of Jerusalem. And we, we get up there, there is buzz that's going on, because what have we experienced up to this point in time? Jesus has entered into the city, and for the first time that I can remember, he's not telling everybody to be quiet about who he is, but he's actually promoting it. And as we've gone with him, he got on that donkey, he's riding the donkey, and people are actually picking up these palm branches and yelling, Hosanna or Hosanna, save us. And the Pharisees are always around, right? What do they say to Jesus? Because the place is packed. It's Passover. You've got no room to even move your elbows. It's packed. And we're going down and then up. And the Pharisees say to Jesus, Calm these people down. Don't you realize Rome is here? We're going to have a riot. And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, if they're quiet, the rocks will start crying out. For once, don't you wish they would have been quiet? I wonder what that would have sounded like. But we've just experienced that. And now Jesus is saying, you need to come with me, come with me. We're going to the upper south side of the city, and it's Passover. We open the door. I'm looking around. I can see Peter, and I'm sitting there thinking, I ain't going to say a word. But you know what? I got a feeling something big is about to happen. I got a feeling that Jesus is going to talk about Finally saying, I am the Mashiach. I am the Messiah. Here's what we're going to do because I'm taking over. That's what I think is going to happen. But I go into this upper room, and there's Jesus. And again, I ain't saying nothing. I'll leave that to Peter. He does that all the time, right? And as I'm sitting there waiting, Jesus actually gets up. And he comes before everybody and he ties a towel around about him. And he gets on his hands and knees and he starts washing our feet. I'm thinking that's rather odd. And then he's going to say, if I'm your teacher and Lord and I do this job, which is the lowest in the whole community or whatever, how much more so should you do that for one another? 
And then he's got bread. It's, it's Passover. So he's got bread and wine. And in the middle of all this, he takes the bread and he breaks it. And he says, this is my body now broken for you. And he takes the cup. It's the third cup. And as you all know, the third cup means the cup of redemption. And he takes the third cup and he says, now forevermore this cup's going to represent my blood that's shed for you. Not what I was expecting. And then he says, let's go. And we start walking out and I realize we're walking down the Kidron, the valley, and we're heading to one of his favorite places. So I'm going to have the lights go off now. And I want to show you where he had, had, was heading. Can you see that? Not well. You'll have to come with us. But he's going to head to the Garden of Gethsemane. And these next three or four slides, you can just sort of go through them. You're going to see a garden with ancient olive trees. Keep going. You know, I just read today that the Vatican just came out and said concerning these olive trees that they've dated them back 900 years. And one thing about olive trees, you can show the next one, is that their roots never die, but the tree itself hollows out and dies, but because the roots are still alive, it replenishes and grows. So 900 years, there are those that actually believe, next slide, these olive trees were in the same locations as the time when Jesus went there. And you can stop those now. I think that was the last one. We'll get another slideshow in a second. But I want you to know what took place here because remember I said this is emotional. And the big question I have for you is why, right? And when we get there... We've just come from the upper room. We're there. Jesus has kind of gone to the side. I'm tired. I'm weary. It's been a long day. And so I'm having a hard time staying awake. But as I look over, I see that Jesus in, in, in tense, in anguish. And in fact, as I got closer to look, he was drenched, and it wasn't just with sweat. There was actually blood pouring out of him. And, and I heard him, and you know what I heard him say? He said, Father, if there's any other way, let's explore what those options might be, right? Right? But then he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. If you have your Bibles, we're now actually going to look at the black psalm. Psalm 188. It begins by saying, O Lord, God of my salvation, I have cried out day and night before you. 
I think this is part of that conversation that I just referred to in the garden. I cried out day and night before you. I believe Jesus had human emotions. I believe in the garden when he was sweating blood, he was in anguish. He couldn't just play the God card and say, I know what's going to transpire, but he felt these things. It was a gut feeling for him. Verse 2 says, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry, for my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to the grave. And then notice verse 4. I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I am like a man who has no strength, adrift among the dead, like, like, like the slain who lie in the grave, whom you remember no more, and who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness, in the depths. Back to the garden. I, I, I see Jesus in his agony and his prayer. This is not what I expected. And as I counted around the circle, I realized there were only 11 of us. Somebody was missing. But there, off in the distance, I hear this commotion. And who do you think's coming? Who do you think's leading this, really, what looked like an army of soldiers coming this way? And then he comes up to Jesus and he kisses Jesus. Oh, you know now, right? This is Judas. And Jesus says, you've betrayed me with a kiss? And do you know where they took him at that point in time? You see, at this point, the high priest is Caiaphas. And Caiaphas' house is really kind of close to where we were up on that upper south side, but Caiaphas being the high priest, in his basement, we would call it a dungeon, is actually a pit. And anybody that is going to trial before the Sanhedrin was lowered into that pit, it's the middle of the night. So they're taking Jesus, and they're taking him up to Caiaphas' house, and they're actually lowering him into this pit. Now, again, you can turn the lights out. There is a place in Israel today that you can go that remembers this event. And here is the hole in the ground that Jesus most likely was lowered down through. There's only a couple of these slides. The next one, hopefully, again, as you're in there, and, and when we go, we actually go down into the pit. You can only fit about 50 people, but as you're looking up, you look at this hole where they would have lowered him. Okay, the next one. You can see the people down on the right-hand side, and you can see the hole atop. That's good. You can turn it back on again. 
In Israel today, when you go down there, there is a Bible that's down there. But this Bible doesn't have Old New Testament. This Bible only has one thing, one in it, and it's Psalm 88. But it's Psalm 88 in every language of the world. And when you go down there, the tradition is that this was a lament of Jesus in this pit when he's lowered. We know what's going to happen because we know the end of the story, but we wonder his emotions at this point in time. What was he feeling? Alone. Alone. In the darkness. Lowered. Already having this conversation with his father, knowing what was before him. He says, you've laid me in the lowest pit, in darkness and in the depths. Verse 7 says, your wrath lies heavy upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. Selah. Think about it. Your wrath lays heavy upon me. What was Jesus experiencing here? What was he feeling? You know what the Bible tells us? Is that he bore our sins, right? What we read in Corinthians is that for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew not sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for it's by his wounds that we are healed. Jesus in the pit feeling at this time emotional, gut, the sins of you and me and the world is what? Being placed upon him? And so where do we go for help? Where do we go for encouragement when we are laid low? We go to friends, right? We want to find somebody that we can lean on. Someone that will help us through this period of time. This difficult time that we're in, right? We need friends. You see what verse 8 says? You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I am shut up and I cannot get out. In my words, Jesus had spent at least three years with his boys, right? They went everywhere together. And I think at this moment, Jesus emotionally might have said, where are my boys? Where are they? Peter, where are you at? Levi, I'm alone here. Where are you? Abandonment, left alone, emotional. 
Today, there's a debate that goes on in medical circles, and the debate is, what's more painful, mental or physical pain? And a quote that I wrote down said, short of a catastrophic injury or illness, emotional pain often impacts our lives far more than physical pain does. Emotional pain has no specific cause, so there's no specific solution to it. That means you can't find a quick fix. You can't just sprinkle some magic fairy dust on your feelings and expect them to go away. You think Jesus felt betrayed? Do you think he felt abandoned? Do you think he felt alone in this pit that he's in? And then the last of our slides, and the question was, where are my boys, right? I think we got a couple more. And right above the pit in Caiaphas's house, you might turn the lights out here, is a courtyard. And in this courtyard, you can see the stairs that are going up, and you can see this courtyard. That, that statue there is a little blurry, so I gave you a one more on this so that you could see it a little bit more clearly. Do you see the rooster on the top? Do you see the figure below? Where are my boys? I'm left all alone. And it's Peter that is approached by a slave girl, not a soldier, she says, you were with him. You're one of them. And what does Peter say? You got that right. I'm the rock. Jesus, if you can hear my voice, you got somebody to lean on right now. I'm with you. Or in the midst of the pit where Jesus is at, do you think he heard the rooster crow? Because what does Peter actually say and do? I never knew the man. In fact, he begins cursing. That's where we leave this event inside the pit, alone. Fearful, I'm shut up. You put away acquaintances from me. I cannot get out. Okay, we're going to end this and then read another portion before we're finished. He says in verse 9, My eyes waste away because of affliction. Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. Two good questions. Jesus is in the pit, and he's crying out, will you work wonders for the dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? Selah. And the answer, yes. Yes, God can do this. Yes, God will do this. Shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave? Yes, 
Or your faithfulness in the place of destruction? Shall your wonders be known in the dark? And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Verse 13. But to you, to you I have cried out, O Lord, and in the morning my prayer comes before you. Lord, why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? You remember that? It's a phrase that most of us know, but we might not know how to interpret it. What killed Jesus on the cross? Do you remember the words, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthan? Why do you hide your face from me? Jesus cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthan, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I have been afflicted, ready to die from my youth. I suffer your terrors. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me all together. Loved ones and friends you have put far from me. And my acquaintance darkness remember my question why why would God allow this to happen why here's part of the reason I'll focus now on Isaiah 53, actually 52. Verse 13 says, Behold, my servant shall, be, shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. His form more than the sons of men. And so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him. For what had not been told them they shall see. And what they had not heard they shall consider. Who's believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He had no comeliness. And when we see him, there's no beauty that we should desire him. For you see, he was despised. He was rejected by men. He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him not, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was wounded for 
our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have turned astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, and yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, as a sheep before its shears is silent. He did not open his mouth. He was taken from prison. He was taken from that pit and from judgment. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth. And yet, it pleased the Lord to bruise him he has put him to grief. When you, make, when you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities, and therefore I will divide him a portion with the great. He shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. He was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. Why? I'm going to have the worship group come up now. And before I give you the answer to that why, I want to paint the picture as what to happen to Jesus from that pit. You know that he was taken up. By the way, for the Romans, there were three basic forms of capital punishment. Okay? One, if you were a Roman citizen, you got the easy way out. Okay? Paul chose that, right? Beheaded. Second is that you could be sentenced to 40 lashes, equal to capital punishment, death. You survive that, free to go. The third the more visual way, what the Romans wanted to accomplish was that of crucifixion, right? And I got to paint one last picture before we go, because crucifixion was not Jesus on a hill far, far away on an old rugged cross, where he's up there with little dabs of blood here and here and in his side, backlit with a halo sort of stuff, right? You've seen those pictures. Now... Crucifixion, eye level on the streets. Crucifixion, buck naked. Complete embarrassment to you. For Jesus, 
Remember I said that second form of capital punishment was what? 40 lashes. Jesus is taken to the pavement. Pilate says, I find no fault in him. The Jews start yelling, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Oh, by the way, do you know what Barabbas means? This is crazy stuff. Bar means son. You all know what Abba means, right? You know they're crying out, give us the son of the father. Give us the son of the father. That's what they're crying out. Prophecy fulfilled, right? And yet Jesus is going to get how many lashes? Forty? Now they stop at 39. And these lashes, as far as what we read in Isaiah 53, you could not even make him out to be human. So not only the mental anguish, I'm all alone, but the physical anguish of enduring the cross and everything else, both ends, and the question has to be, why? Why would God do that? Before I give you the answer, it's a challenge that I'm accepting and I'm asking you to accept. Over the next two weeks, I would like you to accept the challenge of praying and asking God for the opportunity to answer the why question to someone maybe at work, maybe at a restaurant, maybe at home. I'd like you to commit with me to say, God, please give me the opportunity to answer the why would God ever allow this to happen and why did he do it? It's my challenge. Hope you take me up on it. The why? Our culture does not need to hear our mind speak to the sin of our culture. We don't need to simply yell louder than everybody else, right? Our world doesn't need us, in my opinion, to hold our signs up, shake our fist, shame people. You know what our culture, our world needs to hear today? The answer to this why question. You know it. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did God prearrange it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and if you believe in him if you believe in him sins will be forgiven you'll have eternal life why because God so loved the world why did Jesus suffer because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That's our message. That's what needs to be proclaimed, right? 
And if we don't do it, who will? That's our challenge. May we go forth and tell the why of all that Jesus went through. And by the way, if you were the only one on the planet, he would have done it for you. Amen?